This is Banal of America Audio. As we like to say, no commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, no comparison. And here tonight on the show, no boundaries. We are going to tackle a subject I've wanted to get into for quite some time. As I was telling our guest, I really got into looking at this stuff last summer to the point where I got obsessed and had to take a step back and was like, all right, no more researching Scientology. This is really scaring me. And I was starting to speak the language and speak the lingo and understand all the inside uh, knowledge and workings of this whole thing. And I had to take a step back. And finally this fall I was like, i got to get back into this because I want to share all this amazing information with the BOA Audio listeners. So tonight we're going to be looking at the Church of Scientology with our guest, investigative journalist Tony Ortega, formerly editor-in-chief at The Village Voice. Now he is researching Scientology on a full-time basis and really has made this his, his calling card right now. He's really digging into this and doing just tremendous work, outstanding stuff. i got to recommend his website, The Underground Bunker. You can find that at TonyOrtega.org. I'm really thrilled about digging into this tonight. cannot wait to look at the Church of Scientology with such an esteemed journalist who has done such amazing work looking at it. Tony Ortega, welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, hey, thanks for having me on. What an intro. I do my best on those. I do my best. Now, as I said to you uh, before we started uh, the show, you know, I apologize ahead of time. We're going to catch a lot of people up to speed on a lot of this stuff, but because uh, we're, we're coming at a whole new audience here who uh, probably hasn't heard much about Scientology because it's very shouted and shrouded in mystery. So we're going to catch them up to speed, and then we're going to really dig into some of the outrageous stuff surrounding the Church of Scientology. But before we even get into all that, let's get the bio background on Tony Ortega. You know, who is Tony Ortega? Tell us a little bit about your evolution as a journalist and uh, how you ended up on the Scientology beat, if you will. Sure, sure. Well, I was a college English instructor who had kind of a mid-career change, and I became a reporter at the Phoenix New Times in 1995. And my very first cover story was a story that involved Scientology and uh, involved a man named Rick Ross, a well-known cult expert. And that just, uh, you know, when you're a reporter and you work on a publication like that that gives writers a lot of freedom, one story tends to lead into another. So I got a couple more stories in Scientology. And then I, I moved to Los Angeles, where I'm originally from, uh, in the late 90s, and, and, and that's one of the world headquarters for Scientology. So I found myself just 
you know, surrounded by people that knew about the organization and what was going on. And so I did some really fun stories there. I think my favorite one there was a story I did about a woman named Tori Christman and how she left the Scientology after 30 years. And then I moved around the country uh, with this company. Uh, they made me an editor at the, a newspaper of theirs in Kansas City, and then I was the editor-in-chief of a paper for them in Florida. And at that point, I was in parts of the country that didn't have a lot of Scientology, and so I you know, drifted away from it. But I always kept an eye on it because I you know, built up a lot of sources. And I ended up uh, in New York in 2007. I became the editor-in-chief of the Village Voice, and I was the editor-in-chief of that paper for five years. And I, so I was there in 2008, when things really exploded on the internet regarding Scientology with the Tom Cruise video and the whole anonymous phenomena. And I realized, you know, I still have all these sources. I, I had some stories I'd never published. And, you know, the anonymous movement was just thirsty for any, you know, reporting and knowledge about Scientology. So I started writing about it again, and it was just hugely popular. So 2009, 2010, I wrote a few stories, just sort of keeping my hand in the game while, you know, Village Voice is doing plenty of things. But then in 2011 is when a story started that really caught my attention, and that was this bizarre siege going down, going on at the home of Marty Rathbun in South Texas. And that's when the Church of Scientology had sent this goon squad, basically, to try to uh, surveil and, and protest at the home of Marty Rathbun, and day after day after day. And I got on that story in, in March 2011 or April, and um, through that whole summer, I was pretty much the only journalist in the country covering it. Mm. And and it was such an amazing story that this, you know, this, this religion, this Church of Scientology that wants people to think that it's a mainstream organization was retaliating against a guy merely because he had a blog by sending this goon squad down to his, you know, little town in South Texas um, to try to destroy his life. And I just thought that was an amazing story. Eventually, some of the local press got onto that story, and, and there was some really good reporting done by the paper down there in Corpus Christi. Uh, and that just made me realize that even though I was in New York, um, the Internet made it possible that I could report stories on Scientology anywhere in the world. And I just I realized that and at that time, Another little context is I was really trying to get everybody at The Voice to, to contribute to the web. I, I, you know, I wanted all the writers to contribute every day to the web. And, I, and I'm the kind of manager that I kind of like to set an example and do it myself. So I, I thought, well, here's a way for me to contribute to the web. And so, you know, starting in the summer of 2011, I started writing about Scientology every day. And, uh, uh, so, and I have been ever since. And I left The Voice in uh, uh, September 2012 uh, to spend a year writing a book, which is finally getting closer to being published, and uh, started my own website. Um, now, a year ago, or in last November, uh, when I was done writing uh, the first draft of the book, I, I then went back to um, uh, being an editor again. I, you mentioned my full-time job is I'm, I'm the editor, the executive editor of Raw Story, okay. uh, raw, rawstory.com, political news website, and that's really what I'm doing all day. Is, oh, wow. uh, um, it's just a, it's a fast-moving really fun website where I got this great group of folks that were constantly looking at the crazy stories of the day. Hmm. Um, and But then on my own, yes, I do have my own website called um, uh, TonyOrtega.org. We call it the Underground Bunker. And that's where I continue to keep an eye on Scientology. And it's um, it's really grown into an amazing thing because, um, you know, as I said, one story grows into another and, and the sources help me get other sources. So now virtually every day I get seven or eight messages from people around the world 
with look what Scientology did here, look what they put out here, look at this new video they did. Um, every single day I'm being sent all these materials from Europe and South Africa and Australia and all over the United States. So it's been really fun just to put something up each day. Um, as, and, and then the you know real meat of the website is keeping an eye on you know various lawsuits that are going on yeah, around the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, that's what I've been doing, and it's it's just like I said, one story grew into another. I, I'm just a reporter, you know. I'm not. I, I was never involved in Scientology, and it's just um, you know Scientology is in the grips of several of its worst crises ever. And I just find it a fascinating story. I think I think you know it, it, it's it's fun to have a front seat, uh, front row seat for this unfolding drama. Absolutely, yeah. That's why I wanted to talk to you. That's why I got so hooked on it last summer. It's it's really thrilling. It's a it, there's so many levels to this that it's it, it's absolutely uh, mind bending. Well, uh, when you mentioned that when you mentioned that in the intro, I, it made me think of something. You're right. I, it's it's really common. You'll see somebody um, who has suddenly gotten interested in Scientology, and they're reading everything they can, and they read all the stories on my website, and they and they let me know, oh, I'm so interested in the subject, and they realize quickly that this is a story with so many sides to it. And what I really like about the journalism that's been done in the last ten years, um, you know, the guys down at the Tampa Bay Times in in um, Florida, and and Janet Reitman and Larry Wright, um, is People are realizing there's, you know, there's more than just Xenu. You know, for for many for so many years it was like South Park and the Xenu stuff, and let's make fun of their beliefs. But there's a much deeper story about what Scientologists are going through, the families being ripped apart, many people leaving Scientology, even though they still believe in the ideas of, ideas of Elon Hubbard. There's really a fascinating human story about the people that get into this thing what they go through while they're in it, and how they get out. And I think that it, it, particularly in the last four or five years, and, you know, definitely my website's been part of it, there's been that more, I think, more complete coverage, more sort of multidimensional coverage. And that's why you'll see a lot of the people who read um, the Underground Bunker are not just people who have never been in that are curious, but there's a lot of people there who were in Scientology, who, um, you know, even some people that are still in Scientology are reading the website and, you know, sending me emails. So it's a really uh, more complex story than it was a few years ago, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You make a good point about the Xenu thing. I was almost going to even try and avoid it. It's like it's kind of like a magician's trick in a way. They really didn't want – maybe they, they say they didn't want anyone to really kind of know about it, but it worked out in a way in their favor kind of because everyone sort of dismissed them as this as this silly thing – and then a whole bunch of other nefarious stuff's kind of going on under the table where you're like, whoa, wait a minute, man. It's not about this, this alien god thing they're talking about. There's a, there's people that are suffering right now. So it's I mean, uh, it's, it's there's definitely no question. There's no question that Xenu is a very embarrassing thing for them. I mean, that you know, it's, the Xenu story is literally written in L. Ron Hubbard's own handwriting. It's something that you're given in a locked briefcase when you get to what's called OT3. By that time, you've been in the church several years. You've given them more than $100,000 of your money. And, you know, here you finally get this big mystery, and they hand you this locked briefcase. You pull out this document. It's L. Ron Hubbard's own handwriting, which you can imagine how that impacts them. This is their hero. And it's this bizarre story about the intergalactic overlord. And uh, it is embarrassing for Scientology, and they never admit that it exists, even though we know it does. But on the other hand, uh, you talk to longtime Scientologists, that Xenu story, that material, 
they're done with it in an hour, and it's never another part of their experience. It's a very, very brief experience in a 20- or 30-year career. What's actually more interesting is that after that point, the next, four, the next three or four levels, that they, they, you know, what they do in Scientology, once it's revealed to you that there are all these unseen entities clinging to you, is the next three or four levels you're spending getting rid of them. You're, it's kind of an exorcism. Hmm. And you're, you're, you're trying to get rid of these unseen entities. And to me, that's much more uh, amazing that they're paying something like five or $600 an hour to remove these unseen entities called body satans. And that's what John Travolta and Tom Cruise are doing, right? They're OT7. And I can tell you on OT7, I have the materials. I can show them to you. That's what you do on OT7 is you hold this, this electronic device, the e-meter. There are these various questions. They, out of context to someone like you and me, they look a little silly, but they believe in them. That's fine. But they're asking these questions and coming up with responses in order to locate and chase away these unseen spirits. And to me, that's, that's more sort of fascinating than just the Zenu story, which, like I said, kind of comes and goes pretty quick. Mm, yeah, yeah. I guess... As I said uh, when we started all this, I guess bring people a little bit up to speed. Give us your best thumbnail on the history of Scientology. I know we could do a whole show just on the history of it, but that's not what we want to do. So let's. No, it's good to, yeah, it's good to know the background. I right. mean, the basic thing to understand is that, you know, L. Ron Hubbard was a World War II Navy veteran who had been hospitalized um, uh, for things like hemorrhoids and, and, and conjunctivitis, but he told people he'd been machine gunned. And and then he spent time in a mental hospital. I mean, this was a guy that had a lot of trouble coming out of the war. And and then he wrote this book about the true nature of the human mind, his his version, and it came out in 1950 called Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health. And, he, and he's not shy about it. The very first line says that this is the biggest, you know, development since the discovery of fire, okay? And, and he says that, you know, I'm the first person in 50,000 years that, figure out how the human mind actually works. It's divided into two halves, the analytical mind and the reactive mind, he called it. And when we're uh, made unconscious in traumas, um, our perfectly recording reactive mind stores up those negative traumatic memories, and then they get re-stimulated later in life and hold us back and make our lives miserable. So the basic idea was some trauma you went through when you were very young gets re-stimulated when you're 35 or 40 and, can, and, and prevents you from doing better in life. And so his constant, he said, look, the, 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 re, the way to get to solve this is you sit down with another person, you, you try to remember that early trauma, you bring it out, you talk about it again and again and again until you negate its power and they go away. And I always say there's definitely something to this idea that if you sit down with another person and talk about your trouble, you're going to feel better. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I think, I, you know, to, to attribute that to L. Ron Hubbard, that's another thing. But but what made it, of course, his book went to extremes. It said that the most important traumatic memories that get stored in the reactive mind, which are called engrams, occur when you're in your mother's womb or when you're a sperm or egg. Oh, God. And And so he claimed that through his processing, you could go back to your mother's womb and remember you know, when your dad knocked your mother down, knocked you as a fetus, knocked you unconscious, and then dad had rough sex with mom. I mean, this is, and then the, the things they said then got stuffed into your brain, and 40 years later, you now have a hard time standing up in front of a crowd giving a speech because mom had rough sex with, dad had rough sex with mom 40 years ago. And I'm not, I mean, that, those are the, literally the examples he uses. Multiple times he talks about rough sex, 
he talked about attempted abortions, and and he his his belief was that every American woman attempted a, a, abortion multiple times in every pregnancy, what? which is which is bizarre and ludicrous. Yeah. And and but whatever that was his theory. So that's what dietetics was, and it was a and it came out in May 1950, and then the summer of 1950 it was a big hit, and all across the country there were these clubs formed. Uh, and I can go, you can go into the reasons why it wasn't hit, but whatever. The point was there's club reform. People started auditing each other, it's called, remembering what it was like to be in the womb. And, and then it died down. You know, it died down about a year later, and the foundations he started had a hard time paying their bills. Then all of a sudden he was broke. 1951 was a terrible year for him. He was getting divorced. He stole his uh, – he absconded with his do- young daughter and, and went off to Cuba while his wife denounced him in the press. He, he he had lost the use of the word Dianetics through bankruptcy. In oh, 1952, 1952, he regrouped with the help of a Kansas millionaire, went to Phoenix, started over from scratch. This time he called what his invention Scientology. And the difference between Dianetics and Scientology is that Dianetics, like I said, helps you go back to your mother's womb and remember the traumatic things that affect you later on. By the time 1952, his followers weren't weren't um, satisfied with just going back that far. They wanted to go farther. They wanted to go into previous lives. And so that's what Scientology is about. Scientology is auditing to help you remember the traumatic things, the engrams that happened to you 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, millions of years ago, billions of years ago. And they believe that all of these traumatic memories are stored with perfect you know, it's you know, Vizio, it's called, you know, all these senses that you should be able to go back in time and re-experience them. It's wild stuff, right? And and he he had this goal that you would become clear. Once once you cleared away all those engrams and the reactive mind itself, you would then become kind of a superhuman being. You'd have total recall, you'd be impervious to illness, you you know, you you'd be able to actually affect matter with your mind. All these things were kind of the promise of Scientology. To this day, I mean, to this day, what's drawing people forward, why they go to a, one expensive class and then a more expensive class and a more expensive class, is these superhuman powers are held out to them. And the idea that he's creating this new master race, the homo, homo novi, um, who, who are going to become these super beings. So that was what Scientology was all about. And he got a certain amount of popularity with young people. Um, but he also ran into trouble with the government right away. Because he was making health claims, you know, if you use the e meter and you do the auditing, you should be able. You know, he was he was saying virtually all ailments are psychosomatic in origin, and Scientology could help you get rid of them. Well, that you know, the FDA wasn't happy with that. I mean, yeah. back then in the in the early '60s, the government was a lot more vigilant about false claims or health claims. In 1964, so earlier than that, 1953. Also, he didn't like paying taxes. In 1953, he wrote a letter to a follower and said that they should look into the religion angle. He literally called it that, the religion angle, uh, which is pretty cynical and, and suggests that, you know, this is a guy who's got a, a, a lucrative business and he wants to get out of taxes, right? Right, right. So right. at the end of that year, December 1953, they formed their first church corporation, the Church of Scientology in Camden, New Jersey. So a before that, later, they were just like a, they were a corporation or something? or just sort of a, They had different foundations. Yeah, around the country, okay. and uh, but he and his son, uh, six people in total, signed a document in, 19, in December, December 16, 1953 in Camden, New Jersey to, 
to form the Church of Scientology. Okay. A couple of months later, he had some followers uh, start in February 1954, uh, started something called the Church of Scientology California in Los Angeles. That that ultimately became the Mother Church for many years. And then in July 4th, 1955, the next year, he had um, he started what they called the Founding Church of Scientology in, in Washington, D.C. Well, a few years ago, he had a church right there in D.C., right under the government's nose. And by 1964, the FDA was convinced that, you know, that, 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 they, that these health claims were illegal. So they raided the place. The, the D.C. church was raided in 1964, and the FDA seized about 100 of these e-meter machines. Uh, and it got into a big legal squabble, and eventually the way they settled it was from then on, 1965 or so, all e-meters have to have a little label saying that they're not for medical diagnosis, you know. Yes. Um, so, from the, so from the beginning, Hubbard was running into government problems, he was running into uh, hostile press. I mean, Martin Gardner, the famous Martin Gardner, eviscerated Hubbard in a 1952 book, uh, which was uh, republished in 1957, um, just destroyed dietetics in that book. So the idea that, you know, it's just the recent press that has been bad, it's not true. Scientology's had bad, bad press from day one. Right, and they've been getting uh, and, into these, and, these big dramatic sort of battles too, right? And, and government battles, government investigations. Uh, yeah, I think most people have forgotten that they were raided in 1964. You know, they, uh, the, the FBI raid in 77 is much more famous. So that's kind of some of the background of, of how he came up with things. And, and, and the essential idea is that each of us is what he called a thetan which is an immortal being that's lived countless times in the past and will live countless times in the future. The body you're in right now is just a temporary thing you're walking around in for the next you know, few decades. And the between lives, uh, you as a Satan are whisked to either Venus or Mars. And you know, I, can, you can, I can play for you the lecture when he describes all this. You're whisked to Venus or Mars where one of the invading forces that is um, controlling the solar system here uh, will then implant your mind and erase your memories and then send you back to Earth to inhabit a new baby. And and that's why you can't remember things well from your previous lives, is that this implanting goes on between lives. So one of the goals of Scientology, then, is to empower that Satan and become what's called an operating Satan so that you can resist that between lives implanting, and that way you'll be able to perceive your what's called your whole track, which is your entire history of billions and billions of years, and you won't the these invading forces won't be able to implant you and mess with you. So that that's the ultimate goal of Scientology, even to this day. I mean that's what Scientologists are spending hundreds of dollars an hour to achieve. And and I, right now I've calculated that up to O T eight, the highest level it's going to run you about $350,000. And that's just in the course fees. Jeez. There are many other donations that they want you to make. Scientology is a very expensive proposition. Hmm. And I, I, I'm afraid to even ask, but what did he use sort of as his justification for knowing all of this arcane knowledge? Because it clearly sounds like he just kind of lifted a little bit of different stuff from these you know, classic sort of esoteric ideas. But did he ever sort of, I'm sure he had some sort of justification for how he knew, quote unquote, all this stuff. If you read his books, he's he's um, he's good. I, I don't want to say he's very good at it because it's pretty easy for me to see through it, but apparently some people have a hard time seeing through it. 
he's pretty good at always talking about things like research I have done. Uh, he uses passive voice a lot, but he, to his believers, he always makes it sound like these are just amazing things that he discovered, and they're self-evident, and it's a science. Um, you know, they're, they, Scientologists, I, had, I remember talking to one guy who's pretty high level, and he described himself as a skeptic and said the reason why he was attracted to Scientology is it doesn't ask you to believe anything. It's not a belief system. This is an exact science. L. Ron Hubbard is a scientist who has discovered the true nature of the human mind. <laughs> and what I try to point out to them is, is the actual nature of science is that results are repeatable. And results cannot come from only one human being. If if what Hubbard discovered had any reality to it, then any other scientist could duplicate it and also it discovered on their own. And, and but Scientologists, for some reason, never dawns on them that you know all this stuff is only coming from one guy, hmm. and it, and it really is coming from one, only one guy. I mean, he was called Source. They called him Source. All you know, he died in 1986, and they're still using the the policy letters he wrote in the 60s the books he wrote in the 50s and 60s, and they can't change a word of it. I mean, it all comes from him. But, but to answer your question, he was, like I said, he had a pretty good pattern where he had talked about, you know, we, we, you know, we investigated this and uh, we tested it on subjects, and it turns out this is the case. And, you know, anybody with any sort of real science knowledge would, would look at that and say, that's not how you prove a case, you know, but... But for people that maybe don't have a strong science background, it sounds legitimate because he never was saying, you know, I'm the Messiah, I believe in what I'm saying. He, he always put it in sort of scientific-sounding language. Yeah. And then I guess the key, the key sort of like changing of the guard, clearly, was uh, he dies, and then this guy, David uh, Miscavige, takes over. And that's kind of where this whole story changes in a lot of ways because then it – well, it just goes under, undergoes a whole sea change. So I guess talk about that, because everybody, this is one of the weird parts about this whole story in a way. Like, you know, everybody kind of has a vague idea of Scientology, has a sort of vague idea of L. Ron Hubbard, but the percentage of people who know about this David Miscavige, who runs the whole operation now, is really, really small. If you look at, you know, talk to people on the mainstream, or it comes up, you know, when you're talking at a bar or something, they don't have any idea who this guy is, but he's he's the real guy who, he's the straw that stirs the drink over there for a long time now, right? Well, I mean, this is one of the most remarkable things about Scientology is these these kinds of organizations rarely outlive their founder, you know, because they, they're a cult of personality. And, right. you know, this thing was all centered around L. Ron Hubbard and the people who are the longtime people, even the people, some of the people who have left talked about him in reverential tones. You know, L. Ron Hubbard discovered the true secret of the you know, universe and all that. But he died in 1986, and, it, and it's usually tough for an organization like this to survive after that. It usually splits up. Um, but that's not what happened in this case. In this case, uh, Hubbard had appeared to have anointed two of his closest aides as his successors, uh, a young couple named Pat and Annie Broker, who were with him. And Hubbard went into total seclusion. He'd always kind of been in hiding in, at one level, but he went into total seclusion in uh, February 1980, and he was not seen after that. He was with Pat and Annie, uh, he was in Culver City for a while in, in Manhattan Beach, I think. And then in and then about 1983, he went to a ranch in Creston, California, and that's where he spent his last three years. And Pat and Annie were with him there, and there were also a couple of other people that you know were, worked at the ranch and saw him. But it, it was mainly Pat and Annie. And, and at some point, Hubbard wrote um, something that 
declared them loyal officers. Well, if you know the Zenu story, uh, you know that loyal officers are the good guys. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's usually taken as a sign that he intended for the two of them to take over after he died. Well, even before Hubbard died, um, there are indications that, that Pat Broker, at least, was drifting away. He was spending less and less time on the ranch. And neither one of them, neither Pat nor Annie, really had the sort of personality or, you know, um, sort of drive that it takes to run an organization like that. Right, right. So once Hubbard, so even before Hubbard died, there was a young, very young guy in the Sea Org, Sea Organization, which is their sort of inner core, hardcore, uh, named David Miscavige, who was consolidating power. Uh, one of the things that helped him do that was the prosecutions of the Snow White program, which had happened. Um, there was an FBI raid in 77. Elrod Hubbard wrote this program, but it was his wife, Mary Sue, that really was, you know, she got caught up in the prosecution. Hubbard was named an unindicted co-conspirator, but she really kind of, she fought, she really took the fall for her husband, mm-hmm. and she went to prison. And, and as she was um, she, was, she was prosecuted, and I think she was on appeal. At that point, Miscavige essentially fired her. He and he and uh, Bill Franks met her in a hotel in, Cal- in, in Los Angeles. And I know about this because a guy, John Brousseau, uh, had wired up the room and was sitting in a van out by the curb. Oh, and wow. so he heard the whole conversation. And so he described it to me. And basically, Miscavige fired Mary Sue Hubbard, who was like, you know, after Elrond was the top person in the whole organization. So... He was doing that kind of thing while Hubbard was in hiding. Miscavige was really consolidating his power. So once Hubbard died in January 1986, Miscavige was already pretty much in in the lead. And then by the next year, it was just obvious that you know David Miscavige was now running this thing. So he was a very young man now. He, today he's still only 54, I think. And um, uh, he. Um, it's he's an interesting leader for Scientology. He's got he's ruthless enough to do it, uh, but he's not a technical person. I don't think he's a high level Scientologist. He's not doesn't do any auditing. Uh, there's a famous story that when he was a youngster in England, he was so impatient with somebody that he was auditing, uh, he ended up slugging her. And this <laughs> is kind of a famous a famous. Uh, I think uh, Larry Wright had that in his book. Um, but so he's he's not a technical person. He's he's he has not done an interview, let's see, I think he did Nightline in 93, and then he did something on A&E in, like, 98. I don't think he's done anything since then. Um, he's very secretive. So, But he has managed to keep this thing together. I mean, you know, if you want to give him some credit, he has managed to keep this thing going uh, all these years after Hubbard's death. Uh, but, he, you know, the really interesting thing about him is he, you know, uh, they had this death of a parishioner named Lisa McPherson in 1995, and then that turned into a PR nightmare prosecution. Um, through the late 90s and early 2000s, it was just a major crisis for Scientology. But they managed to get through it, and after that point, my my theory is that the Miscavige at that point felt so invincible that he actually started putting his own top uh, lieutenants in kind of a makeshift prison on their secret base in, in the desert of Los Angeles, outside Los Angeles, uh, it's a fascinating story about how he, he, you know, imprisoned these guys and really did whatever he wanted to with them, um, and mm. what that, what the, how that backfired in, on him was over the next several years, between the years 2004 and 2009, a lot of these uh, executives just couldn't take it and they left. Now these were people that had been in Scientology for 30 years, 
dedicated their entire lives to it, and but they just couldn't take Miscavige anymore. And there were stories that he'd been beating people and insulting them. And so it resulted in 2009, several of these uh, uh, former executives came together and spoke to the Tampa Bay Times and had this absolute blockbuster series, which I really think should have won the Bolter, uh, called The Truth Rundown, came out of the Tampa Bay Times in 2009. Right. And it just hasn't been the same since. I mean, it, 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 I think it has really been tough on Miscavige. He's got all these former executives who are willing to talk to the press and explain what's going on. It really changed the way Scientology is covered. Uh, and, and, and those top executives leaving have have really, they've gone on the online, they've written blogs, and they've encouraged other people to leave. And so we've seen a large exodus of people leaving Scientology in the last few years. And what's really interesting about it is they're not, they're not like suddenly like realizing, oh, Scientology is ridiculous and I'm not going to be a part of it. They actually still like Hubbard. They still like his ideas. They just can't take the scavenge anymore. Right, right. Uh, so that's become a that's become the real interesting story of the last few years is this exodus of people leaving, and it's and it's had other repercussions. And so Scientology's really in in I think in big trouble right now. Yeah, that pretty much brings everybody up to <laughs> up to speed on that. You nailed a bunch of stuff. We're gonna dig into uh, as we as we dig more into this. But, yeah, that, that's pretty much kind of where I jumped in uh, towards uh, in recent years, finding out more about this thing. Now, before we sort of hone in on some specific uh, tentpoles of this whole thing, uh, what's the what's the latest on this Shelly Miscavige thing? Because, like I said, I got really into it last summer, and that's when it was like yeah. she's missing, no one knows where she is, she almost heard from her, and then I think they tried to sort of say something about it, but people didn't believe that. So what's the latest on, on this Shelly Miscavige, uh, yeah. Well, I, I know where she is. She's been in the same place for the last seven years. It's it's a fascinating story. Uh, Shelly Miscavige was uh, she grew up in the church. She was a, a um, what they call a, a messenger on the Apollo. She worked directly with L. Ron Hubbard. She absolutely worships Hubbard and will be loyal to him to the day she dies. She married David Miscavige. Um, uh, I believe about 1980, somewhere around there. And as as Miscavige took over Scientology, Shelley really became a you know, top executive with him. Mm. I mean, she definitely helped run Scientology, and they were this you know in you know power couple, uh, both dedicated Sea Org members who who were in charge of the whole organization. Um, in 2005, um, David was uh, they, they always traveled together. They went together all around the world. They were always together. And so I talked to some people who were on the base at that time, and they tell me what was really weird was in the summer of 2005, or about May or 2005, David Miscavige suddenly left the base near Hemet and went to L.A. Uh, because he wanted to, to see what was going on with this book project he had coming up that was going to come out in a couple of years, a very famous thing called The Basics. So he went to L.A. and left Shelley at the base. And, you know, again, it's kind of unusual. So Shelley took the opportunity to get some things done that David always complained about that never got done. In particular, they have these things called, they have these things called org boards. It's a Hubbard thing that every organization has this sort of schematic of all the jobs that need to be filled. And Miscavige would just scream at people. Why haven't you put people in these positions? And so people would like suggest, well, we'll put this person there. But no, that's not going to work. And Shelley, just like everyone else, was sick of him complaining about it. 
And so while he was gone, she filled in the word board, right? She said, okay, this person's going to put this person in this post, this person in that post. Right. The other thing she did, the other thing she did while he was gone, was he had complained, complained about getting some renovations done on the particular um, building he was staying in. The, the it base near Hammond is a 500-acre facility that's got dozens of buildings, and he was staying in a, a, a little set of buildings on the north side of the highway called the Villas, and um, in order to get those renovated, they needed to get all of his stuff out, and he hadn't done it, and he was always complaining. that. So that's the other thing she did. While he was in L.A., she had all of his stuff pulled out of the part, out of the you know building. Um, so he came back after three months or something and saw that his stuff was all out and that the org board had filled in, and apparently he just blew his stack. Yeah, he was, you know, the way, you know, he's a little dictator, you know, and somebody had done something that, you know, without his permission or whatever. A week later, Shelly vanished. And, um, I, you know, I'm working on more details of that last week. There's some interesting things I've been told about Shelly actually making a trip to Los Angeles to try to reason with him. But she basically vanished, and, and that was in uh, late 2005. Um, now, she was seen again in the summer of 2007 briefly because her father died or her stepfather. And and so she was allowed, wherever she was being held, she was allowed out for a couple of days to go to that funeral. And she was seen at the funeral with a, she was with a handler. And she was, they were not supposed to talk to her. And then she went right back to where she was staying. So, and then she's not been seen since then. So where is she? Where has she been all this time? Well, I, I was able to piece together uh, through several different lines of evidence that have only gotten stronger as the time has gone by. The, the number one piece of evidence is John Brousseau, uh, who was a worker at the International Base there in Hammett, uh, saw where her mail would go. <laughs> People would occasionally send mail to Shelley Miscavige, and he saw that they always put it to be forwarded to the CST headquarters. Now, the CST headquarters, was, it's this super-secret little compound more secretive than the international base. It's up near Lake Arrowhead uh, outside of Los Angeles. And CST is a separate little entity called the Church of Spiritual Technology. If, science, if Scientology is secretive, the Church of Sci- Spiritual Technology is super secret. Most of the people, even long-time Scientology executives, would tell me that they'd never seen anybody from CST. They didn't know anything about the facilities. It's very hush-hush. And CST has a special purpose. It digs these vaults that are used to store L. Ron Hubbard's words to protect them against a nuclear holocaust. And they've got these vaults in uh, at the CST headquarters near Lake Arrowhead. They've got one in New Mexico. They've got a couple others in California. And they've been digging one in Wyoming. Jeez. So um, that's, that's a particular little entity. And so it's this little headquarters near Lake Arrowhead. It's a small compound. It's got, I don't know, 15 or 20 little structures, and she's up there. She's been up there the whole time, and she's probably been working on this archive project of L. Ron Hubbard. I've all, I was also told she's more recently been working on this new Golden Age of Tech uh, Phase Two materials. Um, but I'm always getting more uh, evidence that, that she's there, and she's been there the whole time. Uh, and, you know, when Leah Remini left Scientology last summer, when we broke that story at our website, the Underground Bunker, um, she, you know, she had known Shelley, 
and she was concerned uh, concerned about it. And so Leah went to the Los Angeles Police Department and said, "Hey, you know, this is a missing person. Check it out." Um, they in turn contacted the church, and Leah filed that on a Monday. I wrote about it. I broke the story on Wednesday, and then the next or Thursday morning, and then Thursday afternoon, the police were saying, "No, we talked to Shelly. She's fine." So. I believe they went up there. They went up to that CSC headquarters and talked to her and made sure she's alive. But um, sure, she's alive, but there's just no question that David is keeping her out of sight. Hmm. I mean, you know, here he is. He's running a billion-dollar worldwide organization, and nobody has seen his wife in, you know, seven years. It's just it's, – it's insane. Yeah, it's a very weird sort of dynamic because uh... – the cops may have gone and talked to her, and she's, she, you know, she seems like she's so deep into this. Probably she was like, "No, I'm doing fine." I mean, it, 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 well, uh, I, and I asked, yeah, I asked, I asked the lieutenant. I said, you know, um, because a lot of my readers were like, "Oh, the cops are corrupt." I'm like, no, I don't, you know, don't blame the cops because they went up there on a missing person report. That's a limited thing. All you can do with a missing person report is make sure the person's alive and okay. Right. I mean, you can't you can't do anything more than that. But I did ask the lieutenant, whose you know uh, men went up there. I said, "Can you tell me if she was questioned in the presence of a church representative?" Because that, to me, I would want to know that they talked to her alone. Hmm. But but he said that that was confidential, and he wouldn't answer my question. So I have a feeling that there was a church person hanging over her shoulder making sure she, she said the right thing. You know what I'm saying? Right. But, you yeah. know, it, it's important to keep in mind, like I said, her number one loyalty is to Ellen Hubbard. She may actually be not only resigned to her fate, she may – I've talked to people that actually worked up at that compound. There's a, there's, there's one person who, who has left CST who will talk to the press. I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's one of secretive of all the Scientology organizations, and I've only found one person who will talk about it. His name is Dylan Gill, and I've written a few stories about him. Dylan tells me the thing to keep in mind is that place is really nice. I mean, it's up in the woods. It's away from Miscavige. It's really peaceful. She may not uh, hate what she's doing up there. You know what I'm saying? But it's just very strange that, you know, she's not even able to see her family. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just weird. Yeah, it's very like uh, she's like under control up there. Well, that, that Let's talk about the whole. Uh, the whole. <laughs> let's talk about that. That story, the whole and the uh, – I believe, like, the FBI almost raided it or something like that. And that brings us back sort of to the idea that, like, even if the FBI raided the place, the, the, the people might be like, no, 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 we're doing fine. But it sounds like it's really like a hell on earth. Uh, it's been described that way and just torturous conditions and, and things like that. And uh, like you said, this is kind of one of the stories that really tore the lid off of all this in the last five years was this story of the hole. So I guess tell people about that whole thing. Yeah. Well, there before the hole, there was always a prison detail in the Sea Org called the RPF, Rehabilitation Project Force. And if you're and, – and just, you know, to quickly describe, Scientology has people who are just publics. They belong to Scientology. They take courses, but they don't work for the church or anything. Those are called publics. Then there are people who are on staff who work at the – they call them orgs instead of churches – the people who work on staff uh, tend to work long hours for not much pay, but their lives are relatively normal. And then there are what's called the C organization. These are the people who really dedicate themselves to working for the church. You have to sign a contract for a billion years to be uh, in the C org, and you're going to work 110-hour weeks for pennies an hour. You're going to take home about $40 a week. 
You're not going to have a day off ever. You get a couple hours on Sundays to take care of your personal things. But otherwise, if you do not get a day off all year, you won't see your family for years. It's it's just brutal. And and a lot of it's really sort of thankless, uh, uh, difficult labor-type work. Um now, before, let me just stop you quick. How many people are mixed up in the in you know in the billion year contracts and this in, insane I, sort of lifestyle? I, my talk with the experts, the real experts who were in it and saw enrollment papers, tell me that worldwide the Sea Org has probably got about thirty five hundred people in it, and the church as a whole is probably about thirty thousand. It's okay. a it's a very small organization. Hmm. It gets it gets a lot more press than a typical you know another organization that size because of its celebrity. Right. But it's a very they, – they say they have 10 million. It's pure fantasy. Anyway, so if you're in the Sea Org and you mess up, and it can be for anything, they'll send you to the RPF. And it's sort of like this sort of correctional thing where uh, you get segregated uh, with other people in the RPF. You put on really crude clothing. They look sort of like black boiler suits. You run everywhere. You get, you get your food, which is already not great in the Sea Org, gets even worse. You can't talk to anybody. You're really cut off from the outside world. And it's just basically a punishment. And it can last, you know, it used to last months. Now it lasts years. Hmm. I mean, somebody like Chuck Beatty, he was in the RPF for seven years. So they've always had that kind of prison program, but they tended to be for, you know, uh, Sea Org members, you know, in general. Then what happened in, in, in 2004, I mentioned that this Lisa McPherson died. There was a lot of fighting over it in court. They finally settled it. And I feel that Miscavige finally had that big weight off his shoulders, and then he really turned to it at his own staff. Yeah. And it's at the end phase uh, near Hemet, and uh, here's there's you know a couple dozen of the top top executives that worked directly with Miscavige, and he was just fed up with them for whatever it was the org board thing or whatever it was. And at one point he just said, "I'm you know go down here and go in this hall you know this room and just stay there." And and it was a, a set of double wide. I actually think it was a couple of different rooms, and it ended up in what the set of double wide traders. He originally call, they originally started calling it the A to E room, which refers to the steps you have to go to to rehabilitate yourself. And then it and then it eventually took on the name the hole. And after um, uh, at some point early on, and this is very early in the year 2004, they just literally got locked up in there. And it just got worse and worse and worse. So now, I mean, if you want to get a sense of what the hole is like, if you work in an office every day, and you know you go there and you you know you know what it's like to work in an office. Imagine if you couldn't leave. Yeah. You know you, you know you like your coworkers, they're cool, but the, you know everyone goes home at the end of the day. Well, imagine if you couldn't leave, and you all had to sort of sleep on a desk or under a desk, and you never got to go out except for taking a shower once a day. And not only that, but you were forced to. Um, denounce your, your fellow co-workers all day in these mass confessionals, that's what the whole was. I mean, it was literally just an office that they could not leave. Hmm. And I talked to people that were in there, and they had to, you had to find a spot on the floor. And, 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 and Miscavige would do things like have the air conditioning turned off in the middle of the summer, and the temperature inside would get up over 100 degrees. They were literally fed slop from a you know, golf what do they do? What do they do all day? Like what, what? Well, these mass confessions. I mean, they, they, would, they, they would sit around, and um, there would be one or two sadistic people that were sent by Miscavige down to say, okay, Dave has learned that uh, one of you people is a, is a traitor because this, that happened. Now, you need to figure out who it is. And he wants to find out today who did this thing. 
and then they go around the room, and everybody has to say, oh, I think it's you because you just it's, – it's all manufactured, and it's actually very similar to some of the stuff that happened. Synanon, uh, the, the cult Synanon did something like that, and uh, I think some other, you know, destructive groups use a similar kind of thing where you're, you're forced to denounce each other and do it in a group to, to really scream at each other, and they do that all day. God. They would just, you know, accuse each other of things, uh, Scientology is extremely homophobic, so they would call each other, you know, you're a homosexual, and you know, all these accusations that would be made. People would be forced to fight, um, and that's what they would do all day. And uh, and then they, you know, this golf cart would drive up with a five gallon drum of this soup, and they would they would just you know eat this slop. And and so I've talked to people, you know, Mike Rinder was in there in 2006, 2007. By that time, it was really bad. It started in 2004. They put, they literally put bars on the windows and doors. Uh, John Brousseau did that. I talked to him about that. And, um, uh, you know, Mike Rinder, he just, he came out of it like a skeleton. You know, they, they just, you know, he's sleeping on the floor, eating slop, doing mass confessions, and then one in the morning, you would get out, to go across the street to a big gym sort of thing and take a shower. Right. Now, there's and, the, let me just jump in. Like, there's sort of the yeah. argument, I guess, that uh, do these people, do they want to leave? Are they not allowed to leave? Or are they so brainwashed that they think that, 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 that would, the, the idea of leaving would never cross their mind? Yeah, I mean, that's a good, it's a great question. I mean, I was getting to that because you brought yeah. that up. It's very, it's very smart thing to ask that question because, I mean, with the whole, they were literally in a locked room inside of a compound with high fences with barbed wire. So as far as escaping is concerned, they're, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But, but even if they could, would they try? It's, I have a series of videos I did with Mike Rinder. Mike, Mike was the top spokesman in the church for a while. He ran the Legal Affairs Office of Scientology, top, top executive. He was in the hole, like I said, in 2006 and 2007, I believe. And he and I did a video series where he talked about the mentality of, of first of all, how you went through those mass confessions, second of all, why you couldn't leave. And he he said it was like, you know, you feel like a cockroach, and but at least that guy over there is an ant. It's like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm scum, but they're treating that guy even worse. Thank God I'm not that guy. Yeah. There was always some way to self-justify it in your head that, you know, I, at least I'm doing better and maybe tomorrow they'll treat me even better. And he said, you're just always, you're always convincing yourself that, that, that you are in the right place. And, and it's just, it's sad, you know, because he did talk, we all talked about that. If the FBI raided the place, would these people describe themselves as prisoners or not? Well, that went on from 2004 to 2009. So five, and there were, there were quite, they got us about 100 prisoners. And some of them were in there that whole time, okay? So 2004 to 2009, the whole existed at Kent Bay. Then the Tampa Bay Times revealed it in that that blockbuster series, The Truth Rundown. So what I'm told is after that, at some point after 2009, some changes were made probably only because of that publicity. And they, they instead of sleeping on the floor in an office, they got actual apartments. But they're still segregated. There's still there's still a hole, and and the people who are in it are segregated from the rest of the people. They have a very strict regimen where they stay in one place. They do classes all day somewhere else. But definitely, it's improved. And I I credit the Tampa Bay Times for exposing that practice. I, I think it 
you know, it might have actually saved some lives. You know, I, I, saw, I you know, saw a picture of Mike Rinder when he came out of there, and he just looked really gaunt. And he was, you know, there are guys that are older that were in there that really must have suffered. Hmm. But um, so there, the RPS still exists. The, R, the, the, the regular prison program for Sea Org people still exists. And I'm told that there's some form of the whole, the whole not as bad as it used to be. But it, it is incredible that for five years, from 2004 to 2009, this kind of prison existed inside the United States. Um, and then another thing that, that had to change after 2009 was these Sea Org women are not allowed to have children. Because, you know, if you're working 110 hours uh, a week for, you know, 40 cents an hour, uh, children just don't fit in the picture, right? And right. so when – but they do marry. Sea Org people tend to marry very young. Uh, and the reason is that when you are when you first join the Sea Org at 14, usually, uh, you're put in a dorm with a bunch of other men, or if you're a woman, a bunch of other women, and that's, you get no privacy. But if you get married, you and your spouse can then get at least one room in an apartment to yourself. And so you see a lot of people get married very young in the Sea Org so they can get a little privacy. But they're not allowed to have children, and from it's it's hard to they're, it's hard to nail down an early date whether it's 1986 or 1996 somewhere in there. They established a policy that if a Sea Org woman got pregnant, she would be convinced to have an abortion. And I, we've actually now talked to two different men whose job it was to convince women to do that. Jesus. Uh, and 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 their job was to convince these women to go down. And, and not only that, but they would drive them to, like, a free clinic uh, where they were supposed to be indigent, you know. So, I mean, Scientology is so cheap that, yeah, you're, they're going to force you to have an abortion. Oh, and then I'm also not going to pay for it. And various women have come forward talking about their trauma of being forced to have abortions. I don't care if you're pro-choice or pro-life. I don't think anybody would support the idea of a church forcing young women to have abortions. Um, and that's a practice that, once uh, again, the Tampa Bay Times revealed that in 2009. The church, Scientology, had to change its, its ways. Now they just kick you out of the Sea Org if you get pregnant. Uh, they still make it tough on you, but um, uh, at least they're not forcing young women to have abortions. But there's a fascinating lawsuit going on right now by a woman named Laura DiCrescenzo who was suing Scientology for forcing her to have an abortion when she was 17. Oh my God! She's technically a child, so it's a fascinating lawsuit. This is yeah. This this whole thing, like I said, there's layers upon layers of craziness. Now, one other area I want to talk to you about because it's covered quite a bit on your blog, and it seems like it's something that's that's is simmering to a to a slow boil here. And this is the uh, the narco non thing. Their whole like drug rehab program, which uh, there's there's tons of lawsuits involved with this right now. And like I said, it's simmering, and it seems like it's going to explode at some point because it's getting so. So hot. So talk a little bit about the narcanon. Yeah, narcanon is it's fascinating because for you know years and years it was something that they really uh, could rely on as a steady money maker and also something they could rely on to give them uh, positive press. And it's turned from that into it's you know it's just being consumed right now and it's becoming Scientology's number one problem. Narcanon. was the there's a, a guy in prison in Arizona named William Benitez who got a hold of an L. Ron Hubbard book. He was a prisoner in a state penitentiary, I think, and he got a hold of an L. Ron Hubbard book in 1966. He 
put together some ideas from Hubbard's book with his own ideas and came up with a way of, you know, doing some group therapy about drugs with the other prisoners. And it, he, he, he had some success, and so he mailed a letter to Hubbard, and Hubbard really liked this idea. And so he, he, Scientology eventually absorbed it and took, took it over, and they called it Narconon, which was uh, short for Narcotics Nun. It's really not very clever. But anyway, Narconon. <laughs> and and uh, Hubbard's idea was that he combined what Benitez had come up with with his own idea, which in uh, some years later, I think it was in 77 or so, Hubbard had talked to a single LSD user. And from that, had come up with this idea that when we do drugs of any kind, that um, some of the drugs are stored in fat tissue. And years later, that drug residue can be um, released and re-stimulated, which, of course, sounds familiar because that's the way he thought of the way memories worked. And um, it could be a real problem. And so he came up with this idea that you sit in a sauna for hours and hours at a time while taking huge doses of niacin B3, vitamin B3, and it would it would open up the cells and allow these drugs to come out. Well, there's just absolutely no science to back that up. It's completely ludicrous. No, a joint you smoked 10 years ago is not still lingering around your fat cells somewhere. But I wish, man. That would be that would save me some money. <laughs> right. And so they, that that's the basic program. And so, you know, like any other program, it's completely proscribed by all of Hubbard's theories and and for many years, it's been it's been really successful at bringing people in and taking their money. Um, and you know, the Scientology had used it to say, "Look, see, we're the experts on on drug abuse, and you know, we help people." And Travolta, Tom Cruise, Kirstie Alley, all three of them have have made public statements about how great the Narconon uh, phenomenon is and how it's the best thing ever. Well, the problem they have is that Narconon business model is deceptive from one end to the other. They set up these uh, law, they set up these websites. See what, see what happens in the real world, what happens is uh, parents suddenly find themselves at court because their kid has been busted for drugs. Usually happens is the, dr- the judge says, okay, get him into a program or he's going to jail. You've got a week, right? And so the parents are now scrambling to find some place to put their kid uh, in a six-month program it, to meet the court requirements. And so these parents are desperate. They're probably not, you know, being very careful about looking into things. They go online. They find a website. They find all, there's all these generic-sounding web, uh, websites, drughelp.com, rehabhelp.com, whatever. Right. And they see these, and they all have an 800 number. And you call the number, and the person who answers does their best to sound impartial and independent, but they all—it's amazing. They always end up recommending Narconon. You know, <laughs> that's that's the first deception. Is all these uh, hundreds and hundreds of websites—they're all owned by Narconon. They pretend to be independent, but they're not. So the first thing they do is direct those 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 panicking parents to talk to somebody at Narconon. They then say this: they say that Narconon has a 76% success rate. Some of them say 80, some of them say 90%. That it's drug individual individualized drug counseling in the presence of medical personnel in a safe environment, okay? Those are the things that are told to parents, and then they're asked to pay anywhere from thirty-three dollars to $40,000 up front to pay for the whole thing, and they send their kid. All of that is untrue. 
Okay, it's not individualized drug counseling. It's Scientology training. It's the same Scientology training that a beginning Scientologist goes through in the church. The same uh, kind of hypnotic uh, routines, yeah, shouting at an ashtray, uh, you know, doing staring contests. It's got nothing to do with drug counseling. They don't even talk about drugs uh, and what your problems are. Uh, now, let me jump. Let me just do a quick jump in here, uh, and and. Yeah. I presume how does how does that sort of fly under the radar of law enforcement if they're busting somebody and they say they go to rehab and then they send them to this Narconon place? Doesn't don't, don't the law enforcement people have they are they are they figuring it out now that this isn't real rehab? Yeah, well, let me get yeah. Okay. Just, so let me explain how it blew up. So, so it's not drug it's not drug counseling. There are no medical personnel on hand, and um, uh, a lot of people what they end up doing is they get kicked out. I mean, they find out hey, I don't want to do Scientology. Okay, they kick you out, and then the family says, "Well, we paid for six months. Give us our money back." No, so this has been go- this has been going on for years and years and years, and there have been some lawsuits here and there, but they've been pretty much under the radar. The reason things changed was suddenly people started dying. There was a death in Georgia in 2008. There were three deaths in a nine-month period in Oklahoma, which is the flagship facility for the whole network, and that started investigation. Um, uh, I started looking into what the Georgia death in um, the summer of 2011 uh, or early in 2011, and uh, the, that family um, had hired an attorney who really dug into things and found some. And he fought and fought and fought for three years to get documents out of that place, and he did a brilliant job. His name is Jeff Harris. He's really the unsung hero in the whole Narcanon thing. He got amazing documents. Where they're, where they're openly talking about, you know, they're lying to the courts about their licensing and what they do. They're lying about um, the treatment they give people and they know it. Uh, just damning documents. Well, those documents got out, and then the families who were suing in Oklahoma over their dead loved ones, they then used those documents and got some more documents of their own, and it's really kind of snowballed in the last two or three years. So now there are lawsuits in Michigan, California, Colorado, Nevada, Oklahoma, Georgia, investigations in Georgia and in Oklahoma. Um, Some of these investigations are not just about, you know, the deaths, but things like insurance fraud, credit card fraud. And the whole thing is blowing up on Scientology. And, 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 you know, the biggest question is why it took this long. You know, I mean, it's it's just the most deceptive business. You can imagine. They just lie about it. And that's the thing. is, it, it, like, It's like so many other things about Scientology. There are people who would like to sit in a sauna all day in order to, you know, dry out from their addiction. So why not just say that up front? You know, why not just say, look, this is a Scientology facility. We believe that L. Ron Hubbard's processes help you get kicked off drugs. Just come here. We'll sit in a sauna. We'll, we'll yell at an ashtray. You know, the big problem with Scientology is they never want to talk about what they actually do, and that's why they're in trouble. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned the yell at the ashtray thing a couple times. Bring people up to speed on that, because it sounds like it's clearly some kind of infamous uh, anecdote. Yeah, some of the ex-Scientologists will be angry that I say it that way. But, look, lower-level Scientology is very interesting. It, it involves various techniques. I did a, I did a whole series at, at the blog we called Up the Bridge. I did it with Claire Headley, who's this wonderful former Scientology executive that was very patient with me to help me understand each step. 
we went through each step of what they call the bridge, from the very from the personality test to the communication course, to the PTSP uh, PTSP course, uh, you know, all the way to clear OT levels. I wanted to know every single step and what's in it, and so she helped me understand these processes that they do. Um, one of the first things that you do in Scientology is, sit, is a staring contest. You just sit a couple of feet away from somebody else, and you stare, and you try to hold still for two hours. And it's not easy, and it, it leads to hallucination. And um, it's, it's a kind of, it puts you in a kind of hypnotic trance. And, you know, when I say that, certain ex-Scientologists angrily say, there's no hypnotism in Scientology. Well, I beg to differ, you know, the, it's very clear if you read Dianetics, Hubbard is talking about counting down getting and putting people in a reverie. It's very hypnotic. So mm-hmm. you're staring at each other. There's a thing called bull baiting where you hold still while somebody screams and yells at you to try to get you to flinch. And they're trying to, they're trying to push your button. So they'll, they'll say something rude about what you're wearing. They'll say something about your weight. They'll say something about the way your face looks to try to get you upset. And, 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 the, and the point is to get you to hold still for hours no matter what people yell at you. Well, they would say this is helping you confront, it's called. It helps you, you know, um, go through life and communicate with people. But it also gives you that, that very familiar thousand-yard stare that we, that we see in Scientologists, right? That it, so these lower-level things, and, and one, of the, one of these processes that you go through is they put an ashtray on the table in front of you and say, okay, um, ask this ashtray to stand up. Ashtray, stand up. Thank the ashtray. Thank you, ashtray. Now ask the ashtray to sit down. Sit down, ashtray. Thank the ashtray. Thank you, ashtray. I mean, it's literally like that. And you're supposed to bark these orders at this ashtray, and you're supposed to make it levitate at some point. Of course, it doesn't happen. But, um, yeah, you're yelling at an ashtray. And, and I, you know, it sounds ridiculous, right? Well, some ex-Scientologists get angry at me that I say it that way and say, there's really a purpose of this, Tony. It's to get your, it's to get your intention over to that object. Okay, whatever. But when people go to, you know, get drugs, counseling they don't really you know they're not they don't really um want to pay to yell at an ashtray yeah that's what they do <laughs> oh my god i've been involved in a number of cults both as a leader and a follower you have more fun as a follower but you make more money as a leader you're listening to banal of america audio as you know back in 1970 i started on a series called what happened and every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. But it only lasted a year, and that's good because that's how you establish a cult. Now, there's another big lawsuit that's going on uh, that you cover a lot lately on the blog. This is, this is involving Marty Rathburn and his wife and, and the harassment and stuff like that. I guess that's another thing that's kind of blowing up right now. So talk about that so we can kind of hit the biggest the Marty stories. Rath- the Monique Rathburn lawsuit is, is fascinating. Marty Rathburn was um, a guy that was in Scientology a long time. He raised to a very high level. He was basically Miscavige's right-hand man, very respected auditor, and a ruthless enforcer. I mean, he is the guy whose job it was to crush Scientology's enemies and, and, uh, but also to, um, you know, carry out whatever wishes Miscavige had. One of his more interesting jobs was after Tom Cruise divorced um, uh, Nicole Kidman, um, Tom had kind of drifted away from the church, and so Miscavige wanted Marty to get Tom Cruise back in. So from 2000 2003, Marty's big job was to really get Tom Cruise back into Scientology. He did it in a big, big way, which we saw as Tom then went on his big adventures in 2004, 2005, went on TV and all that. 
Yeah. So Marty was very involved, very high level, very powerful, and then he and then he, you know, like so many others, he, you know, miscavigably turned on him and abused him, and so Marty left. And then he he went underground. He was so off the radar between 2004 and 2008 that there were rumors online that he died. But he had not died. He had met this woman Monique uh, down there in South Texas, and they fell in love and and were enjoying life and in, in, in Corpus Christi. And then in 2008, um, and he was doing jobs. He was working as a reporter for a local paper. He was doing various things. Um, she was in the medical field. In 2008, he started to reach out to some of his other uh, former friends in Scientology who had also left. In particular, Amy Scobie and Matt Pesh and Jason Begay. Um, and they started making pilgrimages out to see him. And, and Marty's story is that when when Amy visited him, Amy was also a former top executive who had been through a lot of abuse. When Amy started talking about how Scientology had forced her disconnection from her mother, which is another big thing in Scientology, is they ripped families apart because once you're kicked out, the other people in your family who want to remain members in good standing have to cut off all ties to you. So Scientology was trying to become come, come in between Amy and her mother Marty's story is that he was really appalled and decided that he had to get back involved. And so in 2009, he started a blog, and it was and I started reading it. It was fascinating. I mean, here's this guy that used to be a top top enforcer of Scientology, and now he's writing this blog that's just, you know, eviscerating David Miscavige day after day. Right. And it was clear it was clear that a lot of people who were coming out of Scientology were seeing Marty as kind of an inspiration. Well, the church was, you can imagine, Miss Cavage was freaking out. Right. And so he started sending these waves of private investigators, uh, you know, former law enforcement officials, attorneys, down to that town to keep an eye on Marty, to tail Marty, to surveil the two of them. Um, and then in, in 2011, as I mentioned, there was this goon squad that suddenly showed up at their porch called the Squirrel Busters that were outside their house uh, off and on over the next five months kind of you know besieging Marty and Monique in their home. Yeah, there's a crazy uh, BBC kind of, documentary, right, about the Great. Kind of it was a that. Channel Four it was a Channel Four oh, documentary sorry, yeah, in, English in England. In, yeah, and it was uh Scientologist at War, it's called Fantastic you get a chance you should watch it. It really goes into all this. Yeah. So it kinda of died down for a while. But then they realized that the Scientologists had leased a home across the street and put in remote cameras to watch them 24 hours a day. Jeez. That really didn't sit well with them. And so Marty and Monique then moved away from the Corpus Christi area, closer to the San Antonio area, and they got a much more secluded home that had a lot of woods around it, and it was just a better setup. They could, you know, they really felt like they had some privacy, and so they kind of just, you know, let it all. And, I, and at that time, Marty was starting to blog a little less. I think, I think they were ready to kind of, um, you know, settle into kind of more of an anonymous life. Yeah, move and on were, with their life. They were, they were getting ready to adopt. They were they were getting to, ready to adopt a child, and they wanted that, that to be their focus. Then one day they discovered a camera, a game, like a deer camera, a game camera, attached to a tree behind their house, aimed at their house. Jesus. And uh, Marty, you know, was like, oh, here we go again. And he located the guy that had put it up there, and the guy had this crazy story about, how he was an author and his publisher had leased that land so he could write a story and completely ludicrous. And and he realized the guy must be a spy for Scientology. So at that point, Monique was like, this is enough. Monique has never been a member of the Church of Scientology. 
The reason that she's been under all this surveillance and all this protest and all this hassle is simply because she's married to Marty. And so she filed a lawsuit. It's important to keep in mind, it's not Marty suing his old boss. It's Monique Raspin suing David Miscavige in the Church of Scientology for harassment. And it's been a circus from day one. She filed the she filed a lawsuit August of last year. The reason why it's been such a legal circus is because she named David Miscavige. And, you know, Scientology, uh, they, they fight tooth and claw in court anyway. But you name David Miscavige, and it's on another level. I was in court for some of the preliminary hearings, and, I mean, they had 17 lawyers there. Jeez. At this little tiny courthouse in Cobalt County, Texas, uh, it just looked amazing, you know. And it's been a it's been a really entertaining thing. Scientology has filed numerous motions. They tried to disqualify Monique's attorneys, they filed an anti-slap motion that's on appeal. Uh, at one point, the judge uh, found that she could depose Miscavige. Miscavige is trying to keep himself out by raising a jurisdictional issue, and she wanted to depose him over it. And the judge said yes, but the appeals court overturned that. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it's it's obviously been a real panic for Scientology. They've spent amazing amounts of money fighting this little harassment lawsuit in Texas. And uh, the, a lot of a lot of really interesting things have come out of it that my readers turn into memes. You know, like at one point, at one point somebody raised uh, a Google search, and uh, the lawyers were talking about it. And the Scientology attorney said, "Google is hearsay," and so and so that's now that's now one of my readers' favorite little slogans. They, they don't even call it Google; they call it hearsay. Um, <laughs> and another another time, one of their attorneys was was trying to make the point that even if his client did have bad intentions, it didn't matter for some legal point. But the way he said it was, even if my client has a black heart, it doesn't matter. You know, and we and so I have these great folks that you know at, at my website that are they're wonderful artists, and so they were creating all these posters based on David Miscavige having a black heart. It's been a fascinating lawsuit, and I've been to a couple of the hearings. Uh, this next, up, uh, you know, the next thing we're waiting for the uh, Texas Third Court of Appeals to rule on this anti-slap motion, and you know, it, it could go either way. It's, it's been a tough, it's been a tough battle for Monique so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are kind but, of. The... But let me say the, the most important thing for the general audience to understand is that Scientology has the, stipulated to the facts that yes, they sent private investigators and other operatives to surveil and and watch this couple. Uh, they claim it is a form of their free speech, but I, it's just amazing to me that this church has admitted that because a former member was criticizing it, that they would go to all these lengths to surveil people. And they just call it, you know, pre-trial surveillance. But, you know, if you talk to Monique and Marty, they were, they were put through hell. Yeah. I mean, they couldn't go to a restaurant without being followed. They couldn't, you know... Scientology operatives were bugging their family. Um, she got she got a sex toy in the mail at work, which you know they can't prove Scientology sent. But I mean, who you know who else would? Yeah, why would? So yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's really an alarming another alarming example how Scientology has not changed its ways. It's still harassing people. It's still hypersensitive to any kind of criticism, and it's still employing attorneys and private investigators to destroy people just like it was 40 years ago. Yeah. 
And it seems like, you know, they're they're getting all this money from folks, and a lot of it's getting funneled into the nefarious activities like this. It's really sad. Absolutely, yeah. Um, now, tell me about the whole uh, – that they have these cruise ships and stuff. Are the conditions on the cruise ships just as bad as, uh, you know, as far as we know some of these other folks are suffering from, or are these no, like little no, paradises? No, no. No, the cruise ship's supposed to be real nice. It's called the Free Winds, uh, and they, they took it over in 1988, I believe. Uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard had run Scientology from the you know from the ship Apollo between 1967 and 1975, a little armada of ships. But um, and so they you know that's why they call it the Sea Organization is that they were right. you know from 67 to 75 Scientology was literally run from sea. Um, so you know it makes sense that they would have a ship today, and they they bought the ship in 1988. It's a cruise ship. It, it just sails between several different islands in the Caribbean, mostly Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. And that is the only place. The original intent of this ship, and and largely what it was used for until you know probably the last ten years, was this was the only place where you could get OTA. So, you know, you're, you you start on all these low-level courses and you're shouting at ashtrays or you're using you're looking up the dictionary words or making clay models, which are these weird things you get to low-level. Then you get to higher level and you're, you're doing auditing with an e-meter. You're going back millions of years to explore your past lives. Then you go clear. Then you get to operating Satan levels. You learn about Xenu. You're then, you know, exercising yourself from these uh, unseen entities that are hanging on you called volume Satan, hmm. OT4, 5, 6, 7. OT7 takes a long time. Uh, I, I've talked to a lot of people that spend years on OT7 for some reason, um, and every six months you have to go through interrogations, and it's it, it's a it's a really tough step to get past. And then finally, and you have to take OT7 at, at Clearwater in Clearwater, Florida. Then finally, OT8, the top level, and you can only get OT8 on the ship, the freeway. So that was the idea. Was you know. Uh, it's you know it's special. It's like you know wow on a ship the way Hubbard would want it. That's great. But the problem is that there's so few Scientologists now that they can't keep the ship booked just for OTA. Oh wow! And so what we've seen a lot of in the last couple of years, in particular, one of the things I do on every Sunday at at the website is during the week I get sent a lot of mailers and flyers from uh, tipsters forward them to me from around the world, and you know. They're actually very useful. It gives us a sense of what Scientology is trying to sell to people and the fundraising. Yeah. So one of the things we – it helps us see how the church is evolving. So one of the things that we've all noticed about these flyers over the last couple of years is how many seminars they are holding on the ship that have nothing to do with OTA. Prosperity seminars, art seminars, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, OT postulates. I don't know. There's just – yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of different reasons why, you, you know, you spend a couple thousand dollars and go uh, the ship. And I've talked to people like Chuck Beatty, who's a, you know, veteran Scientologist left, and he says it's really surprising because it, it shows you that they can't book it for just OTA. They've got to book it for all these other reasons. Um, and the ship's interesting. It's had some problems of its own, but uh, it's, and it's getting old. I mean, it's got, it's, I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to keep that barge going. Yeah. Okay, interesting. All right. But it's supposed to be very nice. I mean, you know, it, it got it got an upgrade in 2008, which was done by um, uh, John Brousseau. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom Cruise celebrated some birthdays there. Uh, he took Katie Holmes to the ship at one point. And, you know, you, there are some really fun videos of Tom partying on the boat. So it's it's supposed to be a really nice place 
but you spend a lot of your time in course rooms. Right. Now talk about also they, they have these monstrous uh, buildings. We used one as a as the picture here for the show tonight. Um, and it's it, they're, they're these lavish sort of palaces that, that they're building in these major cities and stuff, I guess. Uh, what's what's that all about? What's the goal of that, just to recruit more people or, or show or flex their muscle or something? Or what, you know, talk yeah, about it's that. Yeah, it's, it's called the Ideal or a Program. It's it's really interesting. It's become an obsession of the scavengers in the last 10 years. The the background is that in 2000, so, so each city is supposed to have what they call an org, which is short for organization. Mm-hmm. And orgs in general were nothing fancy. I mean, they were utilitarian. Because the, the point of a Scientology org is where you go down as an individual, sit down with an auditor, and go through a course, you know, one-on-one. Um, Scientologists tend not to do things in groups, uh, except when they're doing their fundraising parties. It's not like a church where you have a big service and, it, you know, so orgs didn't need to be super fancy, and I, I think Hubbard actually wrote some policies about that. Just needed kind of a clean, well lit place where people can do their coursework. Yeah, it could be more but like a clinic, as they. I guess, yeah, you know, ideal. some of them were bigger than some of them were bigger than others. Some of them were fancier than others, but mm-hmm. um, you know. So then, what happened was in 2002, um, the Buffalo org had to relocate because of some kind of eminent domain deal. They didn't have a choice; they had to. At the same time, the Johannesburg org was really in a table, terrible neighborhood, and one of the workers, I think, had actually been killed in a crime. And then in Tampa, it was just really ratty. And Mike Rinder says, um, and I don't know 100% if this is, uh, it might be apocryphal, but Mike Rinder had heard that Tom Cruise had actually taken a friend into the Tampa org and was complaining to Miscavige about it, like, look, I can't. I'm not going to be able to turn people on to this stuff if it's, you know, the places are looking like this, right? Right. So, so Miscavige seized on this idea. Since he had to replace three orgs, he was going to do something special about it, and he made Buffalo, Tampa, and Johannesburg the first models of what he called the ideal org. And so that they, the idea behind the ideal org program is that you replace the old org with a new one that's, they try to find a historic building that needs renovation. Um, and they've, they've bought some beautiful buildings to do this. Like, you know, in San Francisco, it's the old Trans-American building, not not obviously the pyramid, but the old Trans-American building is really nice. Um, and, you know, in various cities, they've found some historic old building that could use the renovation. They, they, and and, the, and the, the way they run it is they ask the local Scientologists to raise the money. So they have all these fundraisers every other week to have these parties, you know, pledge 500, pledge 1,000. These these poor local members are just pressured and pressured and pressured to raise the money. They buy a building. Then they have to have a whole other round of fundraising to raise the money for renovation plans and renovations. And ultimately they get this building. Now, the other thing that Miscavige was doing in these ideal orgs was uh, I really think he's lost trust of his own people to deliver Scientology and Dianetics. I, I think that, you know, if you talk to people that were into Scientology in the 70s and 80s, they talk about something that was a lot more fun. Hmm. You know, you sat down with somebody, they, you got to talk about your troubles. It was very personality, I mean, person-to-person, very warm human interaction. And whether you believed in engrams or not, the point was that it was another human being sitting down with you and explaining Hubbard's ideas. I really get the feeling that Miscavige doesn't trust his own people to do that anymore. And so in his ideal orgs, the ground floor 
is this big sort of tech museum that has all these uh, the big displays that are showing all these short films to explain Scientology that have been created, you know, back at headquarters with their studios, so that Miscavige is in control of how Scientology is explained. It's not person to person; it's very impersonal. So Miscavige, you know, thinks high tech museum thing is going to draw people in. They're going to be impressed by the building. And, you know, they always tell people, listen, you need to raise the money because once you get this, it, Scientology is going to just zoom in your city. It's going to be incredible. And, of course, the opposite is true. I mean, these things open up and they're empty. Yeah. So, you know, at this point, he's opened 40 of them. Portland, Phoenix, uh, Sydney, Australia, Madrid, Rome, uh, New York, uh, Tampa. Um, and, and all the others are under pressure to do it themselves. Now, uh, I think, you know, Mike Rinder will tell you or any other uh, person that really knows the history of Scientology would tell you that it's a disaster because these new orgs are just draining these the local folks of money and they open up and they're empty. I mean, there's just, th- there was no need to replace the previous org. Hmm. But at the same time that Scientology is shrinking, and I can get into the numbers later, but Scientology is shrinking, but what Miscav- one of the reasons Miscavige is doing it is that he and his spokespeople can say, We've never opened more churches in our history. You know, we've opened yeah. 40 ideal orgs, and that's always what they say when you say, hey, don't, aren't you, don't you have membership problems? Aren't you having problems with your drug rehab network? Haven't you had some deaths there? Aren't, you know, aren't there all these problems? What do they always say? We've opened new churches. I mean, that's always what they say. Well, yeah, you've opened new buildings, but that doesn't, you know, so that's, it's, it's really amazing how focused he is on that. Yeah, and then I don't know which picture you used, but there's the other the other sort of capstone to all that was this building they opened in Clearwater, which is one of their world headquarters that they call the Superpower Building, and that was that was more than let's see 19 they, when did they it was 20 years in the making basically, and you know hundreds of millions of dollars they raised for that thing, and it's incredible. I've got the plans. I got leaked the plans before it even opened. I put those online, and it's just a, a, astounding all the stuff they've got in there. But again, it's you know it, it's it's overkill. It's, it's uh, you know they're getting money from people. One of the things that the superpower building has is a giant circular running track, and they call it the Cause Resurgence Rundown. I hope I got that right. <laughs> and you you pay I don't know how many thousands of dollars, and then you just run around a pole. <laughs> all day on this running track. Oh, my God. And it's, it's amazing to see their literature because they have, oh, I had so many cognitions on the rundown. My life is so much better. I'm like, you ran around this circle for two weeks. What? How? You know, but that's, that's how they, they, they put it. They make everything look space age. Yeah. And so they convince people that, that it's special. You but can do yeah, that at yeah, home for free. Yeah. That's, this is a big emphasis in Scientology in the last 10 years has been on these buildings and real estate. Um and, you know, people tell me, Tony, it's obvious he's just trying to pad his real estate. But, you know, I've got other people that really know real estate, and they said these are not great investments, mm. you know, because even even after renovating them, these are old buildings that tend to fall apart quickly, and they require a ton of upkeep. And we're already seeing some cases in, lot, in several cities where it's really been a problem for them, like in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Boston. They went ahead and bought a building, and then they they couldn't raise enough to renovate it. And so they've got this major landmark in Boston called the Alexander Hotel. It was just a story yesterday in the Boston Globe. It was really well done. I, I kind of teased it, poked fun at them a little bit this morning, but it really was well done. 
guy named Dan Adams wrote that story. Um, Alexander Hotel is crumbling, you know, and, and, and the neighbors are pissed off. Why don't you do something with it, Scientology? But they're, they're kind of in over their heads. They can't raise – there's not very many people left in Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, well, tell us – I guess inform us about the numbers of that. And I guess also one of the big things that's sort of like uh, in my mind as I hear all this is how do they justify – these people spending so much money to to the, to the people that spend the money, you know, like what's their what's their argument for these folks to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars? You know, it's I think it's the classic thing that if it wasn't fantastic, you you know, it it, it, it shouldn't be cheap. You know, yeah. I, I remember talking to a guy, a really nice guy, very high got very high level on the bridge, and really still believed in it. And I said, yeah, but you know, at one point he had he had done OT five. And some problem happened, and he had to redo it. And he said, so I, I redid that real quick. And I said, well, hang on, hang on. Doesn't that cost like $10,000? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I mean, how do you justify that? He said, listen, Tony, if it's going to improve me, it's worth the money. You see that? I mean, they, they talk to people. They, they say, you know, invest in yourself. And if it was if it was not expensive, then then how could it be spectacular? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying, it, yeah. it, It's really a mind game. It's like, well... It must be amazing because it costs so much. Mm. So that that was part of the reason I did my my series up the bridge was I wanted to see okay so what do you get? All right, you're on OT four. You're on OT OT two is one of the wildest ones. You're on OT two. You're paying you know all this money, thousands of dollars. What do you get for it? And and I actually showed people it's this list of questions that you ask yourself, and they're they're they're. Silly. It's like it, they're the silliest questions possible, and yet people are uh, no, okay. For example, one of the superpower rundowns. Okay, uh, superpower involves like a dozen different rundowns. They call them. One of them is called the Bright Think Rundown. And I remember I wanted to know what are these things. You know, okay, you know, mystery, secrets, superpower, but what is it? So I got a hold of the Bright Think Rundown, and this is going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. The Bright Think Rundown consists of one question that you were asked over and over and over. And that question is, where do you feel safe? That's it. Hmm. You sit there and an auditor asks you that over and over and over and over. And you're supposed to give a different answer every time. And uh, and, and, and that's it. That's all there is to it. And I remember the person who explained it to me was, you know, he, he I, I'm grateful to him that he, he explained it to me, but he's still kind of a fan of the what they call the technology. And I was kind of, he could tell I was just like just blown away that that's all you get for $10,000. And he said, well, Tony, you'll be amazed at the answers you give once you're on like question 400. <laughs> yeah. I bet, I bet you you feel kind of crazy, you know. You're, you're hypnotized, you're in a trance, you're saying all kinds of crazy stuff by then. But that's all it is to it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you tell me, is that worth $400 an hour? I mean, they get up to the top level. Auditing can run almost $1,000 an hour. And that's just auditing. That's not the Jeez. donations they ask for, the, the costs involved in flying to Clearwater and staying there. Um, this is not, I mean, this is this is a pursuit of the wealthy. And, it's just amazing that there are people that have that much money that, that pay for something like that. Right, right. And I, I think a lot of it, too, for some of these folks that have been forever, it's sort of like that sunk cost problem. You know, if they've already invested like tens of thousands of dollars in it, they probably feel like they have to just keep going with it because they they don't want to look at themselves in the mirror and realize they made such a big mistake. 
You know, I think that's a big thing for people, that once you're that invested, it's really hard to walk away and admit that you made a mistake. Uh, people have told me that's what the situation was with Tom Cruise, that it would be really hard for him now to leave and admit that he had made a mistake because he's not that kind of guy. Yeah, so there's probably people who are, like, crippled by that mindset, too, that have been in it for so long that probably want to leave, right. but they're like, oh, I've... You know, I, I visited uh, the Unarius building in in California a few years ago, and it was kind of you got that you kind of got that impression from the from the old ladies that were still working there. It was like uh, she's like in her seventies; she's probably been in this for like fifty years, so she probably doesn't you know she doesn't know any other life at this point. It's really sad. It's hard for people to leave, and then it's hard once they leave to readapt. Um, you know, it takes years to decompress from Scientology. Mm it really kind of rewires the way you think about things. Like I said, these low-level exercises, they're obsessive use of the dictionary and clay models and um, these, um, you know, touching walls and shouting at ashtrays. They they seem so basic, but really in a way they're rewiring the way you perceive the world. And, um, you know, all of it, you know, Claire, Claire Hedley explained to me, explained to me the, the purpose of that indoctrination is to pound into your brain that Scientology has all the answers. And if you're not getting out of Scientology what you're promised or what you think should happen, it's your own fault. You have not applied the technology correctly. So it's never Scientology's fault. You need to find all your answers from Scientology. Your connection to Scientology is more important than connection to your own family. If one of your family members starts criticizing Scientology, gets kicked out, it's more important for you to cut off ties with that family member than to even, you know, listen to any criticism of Scientology. It really rewires your brain in a way. And so you can talk to people that have been out 10 years and they'll talk, they'll tell you about ways in which it's still kind of a whammy on the way they think. And, and it, it can take, be really tough to throw off that indoctrination. Yeah. Now, somebody asked in the chat room, and it's kind of an interesting point, like, what, what about poor people? Can they even get in the door of this place, like I don't, to be honest with you, Tony, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. So I guess I would I be welcomed by the Scientologist, or would they be that's, like, listen, I mean, you're no use to me? That's one of the re- that's one of the reasons why staff in Sea Org is attractive, is that if you if you join the Sea Org, you can get you know classes. Now you don't have much time for them. It, it'll be difficult to go up the bridge, but you can get classes and in, in auditing. Uh, you won't have to pay those high prices, but the catch is, okay, you join the Sea Org, you're working day and night, but you manage to take some courses, you manage to go up the bridge, you don't have to pay the high prices. But then if you leave, they hit you with what they call a freeloader bill. And they say, okay, uh, we know we've only been paying you 30 cents an hour for the last 10 years, but you owe us $20,000 because you never paid for those courses. And um, I've talked to people that spent years paying off their freeloader bill, which is there's, it's totally uh, – there's no legal reason why you have to pay it. Luckily, a lot of people who leave realize that legally they're not obliged to pay that. Yeah. But I've talked to people that, that spent years paying for that. So that's one way, um, if you don't have money, one way you can still get the processing is by joining, you know, becoming a, a worker. But, but no, in general, they don't want you if you don't have money. They don't want you if you're handicapped. I mean, the, the, the Hubbard's slogan was, we make the able more able. You know, they want the celebrities. They want wealthy people that are stupid with their money and are just going to throw 10000 here and throw 10000 there. Hmm. But, you know, you can you, – basically you can stay um, 
Uh, it limits how far you can go up, but but I don't want to say they don't encourage uh, uh, people without money to join, but they put those people under a lot of pressure to indebt themselves. So, yeah. you know, uh, Steve Mango had told an interesting story when he came out of Scientology. He was only in for four years, and he didn't have any money at all. He was an actor. A lot of young actors get sucked into it, right? And And he didn't have a lot of money, but they would encourage him to, to open up credit accounts so that they could max it out on spending on Scientology. Oh, God. So even if, even if you don't have money, they will help you find it, you know, by indebting yourself. Um, but so, yeah, they want you to find the money one way or the other. And, and you, so you, you end up begging your friends, taking out loans, um, uh, <laughs> you know. They, they will take people, but, you know, they want the money. You better have the money or, or they're going to make your life a living hell. Jesus. Now, what is it? What what is it about Scientology that draws all these celebrities in in the first place? Because uh, that's what they're kind of synonymous for, alongside the Xenu stuff. They've got a few. I think it's exaggerated how many they have. They've got a few, and most of them got in a long time ago, or their children of Scientologists. Um, they Scientology targeted them. 1955, L. Ron Hubbard announced Project Celebrity and put a bounty on celebrities' heads. You know, if you brought a celebrity in, he'd give you a, you know cash bonus. So right from you know from '55 on, he was he wanted them to find a few because he knew what a you know he knew what it would do. It would give a better image of Scientology. And then in the '70s and '80s, they were able to attract you know Travolta and and, and Cruz and Christy Alley and then a few others. But um, you know some of them have started to leave now. I think what it attracts them. I, I think one of the things is that Scientology is so inward focused. You know. Um, uh, uh, Christian church or Jewish synagogue or Muslim mosque, what do you do? You go down with a group of people and you listen to some orator who talks about, you know, a homily or a, a sermon or whatever, and it's kind of a group phenomenon and you're focused on some, you know, story from a thousand years ago, something that happened, and you commune with your fellow people, and it's great. It's fine. Yeah. Scientology's not like that at all. Scientology... You sit down with one other person, your auditor, and your auditor then spends the next several hours asking you questions about one thing only, and that's you, right? They want you to talk about your background, your memories, your family life, you, 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 you. Everything in Scientology is about exploring yourself. It's the most narcissistic, selfish, spiritual pursuit you can possibly imagine. Hmm. Now, you tell me, why is that? Attractive to celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you can. See, I mean, not, you know, not all actors are like that. Not all celebrities are like that. But some of them are, and and, and I think they're attracted to this idea that you know you're going to be you're going to improve yourself. I mean, this is the this is behind a lot of different I think new age religions is this idea that you know you're gonna you're gonna create some kind of new human being out of yourself and. It's it's it you know it can be really kind of cynically narcissistic and I think Scientology is very much that way. They're pampered, they're 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 catered to. They don't have to go through some of the stuff the normal members do, um, and they get hooked on it just like anybody else. They get really hooked on it, but I don't think they're attracting many new people. I think you know one or two here or there who tend to get like into it because they marry somebody that's into it, but it's not like. I, I think their I think their influence in Hollywood is way down. Yeah. From what it was 20 years ago. Okay. Now we got a caller here. Do you mind we want to bring on this caller here? Well, uh, sure. Uh, they've been on hold for like 35 minutes, so uh, I usually don't take callers, but 
I figure we'll uh we'll give them a shot because they they've been waiting this long. So, eight one three area code, uh, you're on the air. How you doing, friend? Hey, great. Uh, yeah, I wanted to congratulate you on this show. I think you're doing a great service here, and I think Tony's done a terrific job with explaining Scientology. I was in it from um, 1972 till about 1989. And, um, yeah, my wife was in it, too. And we were both listening to the show. And she was in Narconon. And one of the things that uh, she brought up is that uh, when she was in Narconon, which was in the 80s, um, it was relatively effective. You know, and she described it as kind of like honest people in a corrupt system. That uh, a lot of people came into Narconon in those days. And uh, I can tell you for a fact that well, when I was in Boston, uh, before we got, even uh, right after we got married, a gentleman approached me and he thanked me. He said, you know, he said, your wife got me off of drugs. So I think the point that... Uh, that I wanted to make was that uh, I I think that over the last 25 years, the church has corrupted itself. Um, Tony interviewed me for uh, OT8, which I completed in 1989, and I think that uh, I left the church uh, at that particular point in time. But uh, it has been corrupted, and I see it now moving into these ideal orgs with very, very few people, and all these donations, uh, we had donations, but it was nowhere near what it is today. I think Miscavige has just totally, totally changed Scientology. Um, I don't practice it anymore. I left it in 89, and I've been out of, out of it for 25 years. I think Tony brought up the point that, um, uh, you know, what goes through your mind when you go you get into Scientology. I got into it in 72. Uh, it takes a long time to get out of it. And I think that um, so what Tony said is correct. Um, the longer you're in it and the deeper you get into it, the harder it is to get out. Yeah. And when you reach the top, when you reach the OT8, well, yeah. how did you, were you disappointed or were you like, is that all there is? How did you feel? Well, I felt like I had called Hubbard's bluff, and as as I told Tony in the uh, interview, I was moving along uh, really on faith. I didn't really see it as a science. I was looking at it more as a faith. And when I got to the ultimate secrets on Truth Revealed, which was the on the free winds ship, um, I could really see his inconsistencies, uh, the contradictions in his... And I didn't see it before that because as Tony says it's a research game um, in other words it's always research it's always another level and then the other thing that you have to really uh, get in there too is that you're in a group people are encouraging you to move to the higher levels yeah. and um, there's a mystery to it and um, I know in my own particular situation I never would have done the OT8 level except it was two very, very qualified, very, very classy people, two very, very intelligent people who have passed uh, 
but uh, you know they were the ones who were instrumental in getting me onto OT8, and that's how I ended up on the free wind. But I think now, that yeah, uh, it is. Ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was you just going to ask you how did you how did you end up leaving Scientology, and did you did you run into a lot of backlash when you finally got out of it? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I met Mr. Miscavige on the free winds in 1989, just after I had completed OT8. And I had heard about the – we, the, the church was just beginning to crumble at that particular point in time. And I had heard about, through the grapevine, his uh, violent outbursts, even then. And um, I even discussed it with some of the people that I knew who were OT8s. And um, it was startling. The change that was uh, going on in that church was monumental. I mean, Hubbard was dead. Um, the the OT8 free wins was really a gamble. It was a shot uh, into OT8. It was supposed to uh, do more than it really did. It was supposed to remove amnesia on the whole track. It was supposed to launch all sorts of superpowers. But it stalled out because, for two reasons. Number one is that uh, Hubbard was going through some really bad times towards the end of his life. And he wrote uh, a lot of uh, bulletins which uh, outlined his uh, mission for the church. And he actually admitted on OT8, this was the original version of OT8, that his real mission... Uh, was to fulfill the biblical role of Lucifer. And I think that what Scientology is afraid of, in my own personal opinion, is that it is in core anti-Christian. And I think that's why you get all the secrecy. My, that's my personal yeah. opinion. There's other reasons okay. for it. But that's all right. But did you, did you, when you got out, did you face? Did they hassle you and stuff? Or did they try to get you to come back? Or were they just like, all right, see you later? Yes, yes they did. They did uh, hassle me, but it was minimal because okay. at that particular point in time, as I said, the church was falling apart. Yeah. Do you have it any questions for Tony way. before we let you go? Yeah, Tony. Um, these ideal orgs, um, I mean, one thing that I'm noticing is there's a lot of shiny faces in there and that the core, there's a, there's a pretty solid core in Scientology. Do you think that they're just playing a waiting game to let the bad press go, to build these churches, and then launch a, a strategic offensive? This guy was just playing a dangerous game because he's trying to get more and more money out of fewer and fewer people. And we've got lots of evidence that um, that the ordinary folks in Scientology are holding back. They're really getting sick and tired of all the fundraising. There was a there was a really remarkable email that Mike Rinder posted to his website um, several months ago, where uh, uh, a woman in Los Angeles really kind of let her guard down and sent out an email, just really upset that none of the people on the email list was answering. And she said, "You know, we've got so many hundred OTAs in Los Angeles, and nobody's willing to come to a to a, an event." And it was really revealing. I mean, and I'm hearing all—I'm hearing that anecdotally that there are a lot of people in Scientology right now that are holding back, that don't want to go to events, that are really kind of concerned about what Miscavige is going to do. Uh, I, I think it's—you know—as as Larry Wright said, I, I saw Lawrence Wright at a uh, talk he gave in New York when his book first came out, 
And he was talking about that, you know, with all these things like the forced abortions and the whole and the RPF uh, and all the extreme fundraising, that these celebrities have to know what's going on and they have to understand at some point they're going to have to address it. And what he called it was a day of reckoning, that Scientology is coming to a day of reckoning. When, you know, the press is getting more and more savvy about what's going on, they can't just hide these things. Um, and it's it's going to be, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, this is why I keep doing what I'm doing, is I have a front row seat to whatever the result is going to be. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with the scavenge, with all this property, with the dwindling membership, um, and I'm fascinated to find out. Uh, and let me just mention, uh, George White's the guy who called, and I, I'd really like to, if, if you want to know more about his story, it's fascinating. If you go to TonyOrtega.org, just search for the name George White, he, um, he's got a fascinating tale because um, he went up to OTA when it was brand new in the summer of 1988. Remember, I mentioned to you that that's what the Free Winds was for, right, the, the cruise ship, and that was the very first time they were giving that out. And it's always been controversial because um, there was a document that got leaked in a court case which suggested that that original OTA, the top level Scientology, had this bizarre material about Hubbard being the Antichrist and also the reincarnation of Buddha at the same time. It was just bizarre stuff. And it said something about Jesus being a, a, a lover of young boys, something bizarre. Oh, geez. And, and from the beginning, it was said, no, that's a hoax. That's not a real document. Well, George White is the first person to come forward and put his name on it and say, yes, I was on the free winds in the summer of 1988, the first time... He was like the second class, right? There was a class in July and the, or June, and then his class was the second class in July. In the first wave of people to do this uh, level, and that was the document he got. And I really, I really handed George for coming forward and putting his name on that uh, because you know it took a lot of guts. And that's a, that's a fascinating story. His whole story was, uh, I think we published it back in June. Um, OT8 was then replaced with something new and I'm still I'm still going to do a story that's the last of the you know I I did this up the bridge series and the very capstone is the the new OTA I'm still working on it with somebody that went through it and I hope to have that out pretty soon but I I really hand it to George for having the guts to to be the first person to come out put his name on it and say yes that was what OTA originally was about was this bizarre material that Hubbard wrote um, the other thing that, that George brought up was this Narcanon thing. Look, let me let me just say that um, the fact that, you know, that people always have anecdotal stories. Oh, yes, this helped me off drugs. Well, there's plenty of other stories about things helping people off drugs. That's not the issue. The issue is Narcanon is a deceptive business that always has been. It's not open about the fact that it's Scientology training rather than drug rehab. It's not open about the fact that it has no medical personnel on hand, even though it says it does. It's stealing money from people, and it's paying the price. It is now being sued out of existence in fraud lawsuits across the country. So when old-time Scientologists come to me and say, oh, but Tony, you know, Narconon helped me. It's a good thing. I'm sorry. Narconon has become Scientology's Achilles heel, and it may really harm the scavenge in the long run. So that's the rest of the real story of what's going on. But I'm really glad George called in. I, I think his story is really fascinating. Yeah, thanks for calling in, George. I had to uh, let him go there because uh, we're running near the end of the end of the show, but uh, big big thanks to him. So we got somebody else calling in, but uh, we're pretty much out of time almost, so we'll have to save that for another time. 
whoever the uh, 917 caller is. How do you see, you say you're at the front, you know, you got a front row seat for all this, and, and it's kind of fun to speculate on how this could all unfold. Is it possible that, you know, maybe the, the, the layer below Miss Miscavige is, could, could uh, you know, get him out of there? Is it possible we're going to see some kind of, like, vote of no confidence at some point if this keeps getting worse? Or is his stranglehold on the organization so strong that it's... There, there are definitely people in Scientology who would like to see Miscavige leave. And um, some of them have actually created websites talking about the underlying legal papers that uh, describe the entities of Scientology. The, the, their Scientology, very purposely, in the early 1980s, while Hubbard was still alive, created this Byzantine network of corporations, in order, nested corporations, in order to um, uh, keep, keep uh, Hubbard's money away from lawsuits and that kind of thing. And to this day, this, this alphabet soup of entities run Scientology, the Church of, Scientology, Church of Spiritual Technology, the um, Religious Technology Center, Church of Scientology International, I mean, a bunch of these other ones. And uh, there are folks who would love to find in those bylaws some way of deposing Miscavige. But I talked to, uh, before her death, I talked to Denise Brennan. She was one of the, the people who actually helped create that corporate structure. And she assured me that that was the whole purpose, was to send people on a wild goose chase thinking they could find a way to depose Miscavige, and it's just not there. Uh, Mike Rinder has assured me that Miscavige has attorneys that have this completely figured out. Uh, you know, I, I actually dug into it at one point and found that, okay, there are a couple of trustees on the CST, for example, that might be able to vote Miscavige out. Well, guess what? They're, they're both in the hole. You know, I mean, Miscavige, Miscavige has the people who might you know, start a coup in his prison. So yeah. it just doesn't work. You know, Miscavige, at this point, whether you like it or not, Miscavige is Scientology. Hmm. He's got complete control of the trademarks and copyrights at all on Hubbard. And so the question becomes, if people keep leaving, you know, long-time Scientologists walk away, um, you know, is there a church of Scientology that only, it only consists of one man? You know, how does that work? I don't know how that's going to work. I think I think that, you know, there's going to be some government interest. We've I already reported recently on some possible IRS interest again, finally. IRS gave Scientology corporate, I mean, tax exempt status in 1993, which is the main reason Scientology still exists. And if they change that, it could be a real challenge. And, I, you know, I've, I've seen the first stirrings of IRS interest. Um, the press keeps getting really bad, and... One thing to keep in mind is the people inside don't care about bad press. If you're in Scientology, you don't even read the bad press. So, so it's a, it's a myth to think that you know these newspaper stories or documentaries are going to convince anybody in Scientology to leave. It's not that's not the case. But the people inside are leaving because of what Miscavige is doing. Yeah. But but the bad press does. What the bad press does though is it does interest government people. It does interest investigators. And there are a couple of big movies coming out soon. You know, there's a, there's they're they're gonna they might be coming out as soon as the end of this year, definitely uh, early next year, feature length films about Scientology, and I think it's gonna have a huge impact. Interesting, like the master kind of stuff, films or documentaries? No documentaries. Oh wow, that'll be great. Yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, let's do the plugs here. Uh, as you said, I apologize at the beginning. I thought you, I, I didn't know you were at Raw Story now, so uh, that's an awesome uh, website. I didn't realize. I love it. It's a, it's a great place. We've been doing really well, and uh, it's a great mix of folks, and we have a lot of fun. It's rawstory.com, 
Um, and then my website, my own website is TonyOrtega.org, which we call The Underground Bunker. And there's just a lot of super knowledgeable people. I'm a reporter. I'm not an academic. I'm not a former Scientologist. I rely on other people to understand this stuff. And uh, what I love about the bunker is that there are so many people, if I say something, uh, if, I, if I refer to a particular arcane Scientology technology, technological thing, in the comments there will be people that win for 30 years who will say, yeah, Tony, and here's some more details on that. I mean, the, just the knowledge there is really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so go there because it's a it's and we have something every day. Hmm. It's an incredibly vibrant community, and I got to give props because you uh, you plugged it on your website, and we had a record smashing chat room tonight, and uh, and, and, and <laughs> I think more callers than we've ever had before. Because I, as you may have noticed, I don't give out the number or anything. I pretty much kind of want to want to hoard the guest to myself. But the, we've had a couple of callers tonight. One we managed to get on the air, and uh, one we had to pass on. Hopefully, we'll get you back on the show in the future, man. We've kind of laid the groundwork here, and hopefully we can keep digging into this in future installments on the show. I really, 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 really enjoyed the conversation, and hopefully you open well, up a lot of people's eyes. great. Thanks for letting me blather on for so long. I've got some big stories coming and some big announcements coming, so you know, I'd love to come back when I've got some more to say. Yeah, absolutely. Let me know. And uh, Well, we got about four minutes left. Let me just touch quickly. Is it pot like... I joked with you before we started the show. I was like, am I going to get harassed now? Am I going to have people like in my driveway yelling and banging on pots and pans and stuff? And you said uh, I'd probably be okay, which is <laughs> made me breathe a sigh of relief. Has it, ha- have you ever run into any of that might, kind of stuff? I think you might want to move to Panama, just to be safe. <laughs> is, it, is it bad, or, or do they leave you alone? I presume they must it not depends, like you very much. It depends. I, I, you know, I've been writing about them for 19 years now, and you can't do that kind of work without certain risks. But I just, you know, I, I always tell people, oh, if you do one or two articles, it's they're going to leave you alone. But you know what? Just today I talked to a reporter who was telling me that he did one story about Scientology three or four years ago, and there was a private investigator planted outside his house for days afterwards. So, it, you know, it depends on what they want to do. I, I think in general they're spread very thin right now. They're watching Marty Rathbun in Texas. They're watching Mike Rinder in Florida. They're watching the Headleys in Colorado. They're they're involved in lawsuits across the country. I, I think they're kind of – they can't go after everybody like they used to. Um, and, I, you know, I've done a number of, of radio programs like this over the last year, and I haven't heard of any problems for anybody. But you never know. I mean, they love to they love to mess with people, and it's just uh, not fun when you got a private investigator calling up all your friends. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 what's interesting is they're following the same playbook that L. Ron Hubbard wrote, you know, 50 years ago, and they cannot change. So they're very predictable. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, I just don't want sex toys mailed to my work. That's the last. <laughs> They already think I'm strange enough having a program like this, so it would be even worse. Right. And and since we got two minutes left, you are the editor-in-chief at Village Voices. Michael Musto as cool as he seems uh, on TV and in print? Oh, Michael's the best. But you know what's surprising for people that have never met him? They don't realize how quiet and shy he is. He's just incredibly quiet and shy. And, and, and it's it's surprising because if you ever used to see him on Countdown with Keith Olbermann. All the time, he, yeah. He's so he was so he's so effusive on camera. I mean, he's just really energetic, but in person, you know, it's just very very quiet person. But I I love working with him. He's just a great writer. 
Yeah, yeah, he's pretty cool. I've uh, I've always wanted to hang out with him sometime. I bet he's a lot of fun. Uh, well, that's pretty much the end of the show. I can't thank you enough, Tony. Like I said, uh, just unleashing an, an, a, a wave of massive information here to the people who are listening, who are regular BOA audio listeners who maybe have only heard sort of tangents on this story. We really dug into a lot of the big issues facing this. And like I said, please keep in touch. Let me know when things break. I'll be closely following the underground bunker and keeping an eye on your stuff and, and trying to follow this along and definitely will bring you back on the show if you'll if you'll be, come back to talk about this stuff more and more because, like I said, it clearly struck a nerve with a lot of people and it's something that, you know, we talk about UFOs and, and uh, Bigfoot and stuff like that on the show. It's a lot of fun, but at the same time, this is real people, things that are happening, things, real things that are happening to real people and uh, it's troubling stuff and definitely worthy of uh, taking a closer look. So thank you so much well, for coming thank, on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's been fun. And the website's, once again, uh, TonyOrtega.org to find out more about his research into Scientology and RawStory.com news website. Fantastic website, folks. Check that out as well. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room. Massive turnout tonight. And thanks to the folks that called. Tony, I'm just going to do my plugs here. You're free. There we go. That British lady always gets me. You're free to leave, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm going to throw in the plugs now. Have a great right, night, and here. hopefully Thanks we'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right, there goes Tony, and there goes the live audience. If you're listening to this, folks, and you have no idea where you heard it, what we are, and all that good stuff, we are Banal of America. You can find out more about us at banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. We're also on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America and check us out. What you just heard was a two-hour live program with Tony Ortega of the Underground Bunker, and it was absolutely free. We do that via donations from the BOA listeners. How can you help us out? Simple. Head on over to PayPal and make a donation, or go over to Banal of America and find the P.O. Box address and send us a donation. All donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to ensure that these episodes keep coming at you free and that our archive stays free as well. Uh, I can't even begin to plug the next edition of BOA Audio because I'm not sure what it is going to be just yet. We're heading into October, folks. I can tell you this episode was episode number 31 of the season. Traditionally, we end it at 33, which would mean we have two more shows left. I am in the process of finalizing the BOA Audio Season 8 finale. I should have Final word on that, hopefully by the end of this weekend. So we're going to be wrapping up the season here in October, although there's a chance we're going to wrap it up at the end of October, which means we have several weeks of time before the season finale and only one episode, which doesn't make sense to me. So we'll probably end up throwing a few bonus episodes in there as we get close to the season finale. I should have information on the next edition of BOA Audio, hopefully around the beginning of the week next week. Got a couple of feelers out to some fantastic guests, and we should have something locked in regarding episode 832 very, very soon. And as I said, 833, the season finale, should be coming at you at the end of October. And by then, maybe it'll be episode 835, because we'll throw in some bonus episodes as well. A lot of stuff percolating at BOA right now. A lot of good stuff coming at you in October. People have already asked me what's going to happen after that. We'll save all that discussion for a future edition of the program, but rest assured, folks, BOA Audio is not going anywhere, and BOA Audio Season 9 is definitely going to happen. It is 
on the drawing board right now. We're putting together some fantastic stuff all ready for our ninth season. And as I said, we'll dig into all that sometime down the line because there's plenty going on at Benal of America right now. With all that said, thank you folks for tuning in tonight. I really do appreciate it. Thanks to all the folks who jammed the chat room, just record-breaking numbers in the chat room, and thanks to the guys who called in, the folks who uh, dialed in, the one guy we got on the air, and I really apologize to the guy we didn't get on at the end. He called about 10 minutes towards the end of the show. We just didn't really have time to put him on. So hopefully when we get Tony back on the program, that caller will dial us up and get on the show. And, of course, enormous thanks to Tony Ortega for coming on the program. Just, as I said, unleashed a tremendous wave of information on the BOA audio listeners. I have a feeling a lot of the listeners hadn't really heard some of these crazy stories about Scientology, so I have a feeling they were very enlightened and entertained. And, with all that said, my friends, thank you so much for making BOA audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.